0: Before we get to today's episode, I want to ask you guys for a big favor. Go ahead and follow or subscribe and leave a rating or review on this podcast. It goes a long way. It helps people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. Okay, on to today's episode.
1: You're listening to Making It with John Davids.
0: We are live with John Wilson at Wilson Companies. Welcome,
1: my friend. Thanks for having me on. This should be a good time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Excited to uh, have a conversation with you. I know, um, you know I've seen your stuff on Twitter, as, as everyone else has, and your audience has grown and your content's awesome. So why don't you just give us a quick 60 seconds on who you are, what you do, and then we'll, we'll get into it.
1: So I'm based out of Akron, Ohio, and my main day job aside from Twitter, and attempting to create semi-decent content, is I buy home service companies. So we buy plumbing companies, septic, HVAC, electrical. We've been doing that for about seven years. We basically do a deal a year. So that's been most of my journey over the past you know, seven years. In the past year, we've, we're experimenting with new stuff. We got onto Twitter, started a podcast, and you know, we're running a conference in the next couple months. So we're sort of branching out into other things that I find intellectually interesting.
0: That's really interesting. So you're one of those people like many of us that got onto Twitter during, I guess, the beginning or the middle of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Was was that kind of spurned by just boredom or what what made you do it?
1: Well, I I kept listening to all these podcasts and I would go check out their Twitters and just see what they were doing. And then I, I found I was lurking for like three or four months and I still didn't have a Twitter account. Like I was just going on, you know, Chrome or whatever, twitter.com, checking people out. I was like, yeah, this is weird. I should probably make a Twitter account and I should probably start doing the same thing. I, I heard on my first million episode where one of the hosts, it was either Sam or uh, Sean, they, they described how they started a business and they sold access to like the first 90 days of like daily journals of what they did for 50 bucks a month or something like that. And they made 150 grand in 90 days. And I was like, oh my God, this is insane. This is the power of an audience. I need to get on Twitter. So yeah, that's that's out of yeah. happening.
0: That's really funny. You know, you know what's so funny about this whole trend and, and the My First Million guys and and you know all, all the different podcasters and Twitter personalities that have sort of become big over the last couple of years. I've been in the influencer business since 2014. That 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 was my my mm. first kind of big company and still own it today. So I've been writing checks to, you know, YouTubers and TikTokers. YouTubers early on for, you know, 10 grand, 20 grand for a video. I've been doing that for seven years. And so the kind of aha moment that a lot of people have had over the last year or two, which is like, oh, we can have an audience and create content and also monetize it, is sort of like, it's like a rebirth almost. And the generation yeah. of people now that are entrepreneurs, have businesses, and also have these public personas is, I think, an amazing trend. And, and yeah, it, it, it creates opportunities across
1: the board. Um, yeah, I think so too. It it's been interesting, and it's interesting to watch other people doing the same thing. It it, it is fascinating, you know, people running hundred million dollar companies, and then they have like a podcast on the side or a newsletter or something that they monetize for like a few dollars. But it's interesting. It's totally different than anything I do during the day, right? <laughs> during the day, like by day. This morning I was at a septic company talking to my team about just like we do an annual here's how we're doing conversation. We call it State of the Wilson. And so this morning, I was at my septic company. We're watching all the trucks roll out. They're you know, about to go pump sewers or whatever. And now I'm you know, dealing with content and podcasts. So totally different. And I, I, I love the spread. I love how different it is.
0: Yeah, that, that's awesome. So let, let's actually get into, uh, into what you do in Wilson Companies. So you said you started seven years ago. And I think I read somewhere that this was a family business or there was a family business that you took into what it is today. What what was the origin
1: story? Our first acquisition, I was 25 and it was my family's company. So I was the third generation. Grandfather started it back in 1958. So we're on year 64 now, which is totally crazy. And I had been working in that business, you know, family business, very small family business, 9-10 people. I'd been working in that family business growing up. You know, as a kid after school I would go and restock fittings in the garage and I would go on the trucks and help the guys out in the summer and do whatever. So like from 10 on, I was working inside the business, graduated high school, started working as a tech, and I was given the opportunity to buy half at 25. So the business has changed a lot since that point. The company was very small. Now we're not small at all. But, but that was the origin story. So third-generation family business, started with my grandfather. I was able to buy half and then I, I bought the rest as the years went on.
0: And, and why? So, so, two questions there. The whole idea of buying half, and I, I saw you write about this and how you think that's a good idea. Why buy it versus just inherit it? Who, who's, whose idea was that?
1: There's a lot of confusion with how family businesses are trans, transitioned. So, I don't know many businesses that have actually been inherited. Most of the businesses that I know interfamily are purchased in some way. It, it's, it's for good reason. If you think about how small businesses work, let's say there's $100,000 of cash flow, which is, that's a good Main Street business. That business cannot be given away because it's, the sum of money is likely still important to that business owner, right? So if my dad owns that business, he might only be able to sell it for a million dollars or $800,000, something like that. But, so not a huge sum of money, And if he's only been making hundred thousand dollars for the last thirty years, he doesn't. He's not worth twenty million dollars. So this is an important cash flowing asset to this generation. So for them to wait until they die for it to pass on, and split up that little amount of cash flow, it, it just doesn't work. And that is the reality of most small family owned businesses. Is they are usually that small. Now when you get into companies like our current size, you might start to see more inheritance because it doesn't make sense for the kids to buy it. It's too large. And the only way for them to buy it is with the help of private equity. And then you're inviting private equity into the family firm, and it gets a lot more confusing.
0: Right. So that, that, that makes sense in the sense that you're buying an asset so that the people that owned it before you, your parents and their generation can continue to live and you can take it over while they're still alive. You're doing it in a, in a yeah. way that is, that is a win-win for everybody. So you buy that business, and then what was the that turning point where you said, I don't want to run a small firm, I want to use this as a platform to scale? Did you know that before you bought it, or was that something that came later?
1: No, that was the plan going into it. Again, the business was was small. And I think a lot of the reasons that kids probably aren't interested in their parents' business, aside from, you know, we're in like plumbing. (laughs) So, like that one I get. Is it's hard work. These are small enterprises. And if you're if you're buying it, you're probably buying a job, and you've seen your parents work like six, seven days a week for your entire childhood, right? So, like, that's not attractive. <laughs> so, going into it, I was like, the, the only way this can work is if we make it bigger. It, it just can't work at its current size. I'm not interested in working, not even the hours, but the type of work that my father still had to do. He was hands on the tools uh, all the way up until his 60s because. One, he liked it, but two, the business was so small that he had to. So I went into it knowing that we had to scale it. Otherwise it just wasn't gonna be attractive for me.
0: But that's, that's a pretty crazy, I mean, you say it like, it was, uh, it was obvious, but that's a pretty crazy insight for a 25 year old to have. Where, where, where did you figure that out? Were, were you reading the Buffett letters or were you like seeing <laughs> roll ups happening?
1: I, d- I don't, I really don't know. Uh, roll ups weren't a thing in my industry at that point. Those only started a couple years ago. I probably just saw other, other owners that were running their business in the way that I wanted to run it, which was more of an executive style business. And I was like, well, it's possible. So if it's possible, that means we can do it. And if we can do it, that means we should do it.
0: So what, what was the transition? So you, you buy it on day one. Were you still swinging a hammer or did you flip that almost immediately?
1: Leading up to the sale, I switched out of a full-time tech role into like a pseudo tech service manager role so part time working on process part time working in the field still driving revenue too small of a company to support more overhead right so took a pseudo service manager role and then i stood for probably 6 to 9 months after the transaction happened and then we we were able to hire more people in i realized we were just really struggling to grow so when you're a small company companies stay small for a lot of reasons. But one of them is it's just really hard to reinvest cash when you're that small because there's just not enough cash. So if you're net profiting $150,000 after owner salary, you still have to buy vans, you still have to buy tools, you still have to give raises, and then you still want to pull some profit out for you and your family, right? $150,000 goes really fast. That's like three vans and some tools. <laughs> so we're about a year into, the, into ownership, and I'm sitting there. And it's just really clear that this isn't going to work. Like This isn't going to work the way I thought it was. We can't just scale. The cash has to come from somewhere. And we didn't go into it with a big cash reserve. Because when we did the transaction, my father took the cash out of the business, his prerogative. And we start, we had to rebuild the nest egg from zero. We did that. So a year in, I'm like, hey, m- maybe it's time to look at buying another company. Because that that way, we can just cut a check. We can sign some debt. And we can double and immediately have more cash flow to then reinvest into our business, like real estate. Right. And we, we were basically a real estate family. The plumbing business was a side hustle of my dad's. So the, the real estate was the main thing. The plumbing was like the free maintenance company for his, <laughs> for his real estate. So it was about 14 or 15 months in, I executed on another deal. It was a turnaround. They were on the verge of bankruptcy. So we got it cheap, which was all I could afford. But they had good customers. They had 9 or 10 people on staff. So we were able to double overnight. And that's when things really started to take shape.
0: So you buy this company. So I guess you went from 10 people to about 20 people. And your free cash flow started to grow. How quick was it before you had enough cash flow to actually have excess? Was it like almost immediately? Or was it like a, a full year cycle before the next move came?
1: Yeah, it was a full year. So it seems like anytime we do a deal, it takes about the first full year to stabilize. It was the same on that first deal. And it's the same on all the deals I'm doing now. (laughs) It takes a year to stabilize and really just get consistent cash moving out of that business. We did a deal last July, and we're in month 10 now. And cash is just starting to flow the way it's supposed to. So yeah, it takes about a year.
0: Okay, so, so just to break down one of these transactions, because I'd assume that the seven transactions you've done are, are sort of the same, maybe just a little bigger. But the transaction in my mind is you buy a company, you place a bunch of debt on it, the operations from the company service the debt, and then at a certain point, the cash flow services the debt plus excess, and that's where you have the surplus to, to do more. Is that basically it or is there more to it than that?
1: No, that's pretty much it. You can overcomplicate it if you want by, hey, you have more assets, now you can you get access to more debt, you get access to more lines of credit, you get access to just more in general, like the balance sheet grows. So you get all the benefits of a stronger and bigger balance sheet, but you pretty much summarized it.
0: So there, there's economies of scale for sure, because you can start to look at these things like one big company. How, how do you structure them? Are they all operating under the same entity or are they all individual entities?
1: All right, so it depends. If it's a new trade, like a trade that we don't already have in the portfolio, it operates on its own. If I have a plumbing company and I'm going to go buy another plumbing company, I'm just going to roll those two together,
0: and do you keep the brand or the the brand just comes uh, into into the same one.
1: The brand transitions over about two years in in the sort of tuck-in scenario right. So we've done four of those because there's no point. You know, it's the same p and l. You just eventually transition it. You combine teams. and in about two years it, it looks a lot cleaner.
0: So where have these things gone wrong? You've done seven of them. Have they all been just a breeze or
1: <laughs> have, have, have anything gone wrong for you? Yeah, yeah, no, totally easy. Yeah, where have they gone wrong? It's more like where haven't they? You know, we we learn lessons every time, sometimes really painfully, sometimes really easily. Usually, if there's a big thing that went wrong, it was our mistake in how we handled people. So we've learned every single time, a new way of, hey, we shouldn't have done that. We shouldn't have handled maybe that team member that way. We shouldn't have handled the intro conversation that way. But it's almost always been people.
0: Well, you're, you're in a very heavy people business. And, and I'd imagine a lot of these folks are laborers. They have a certain way of doing things. You know, mm-hmm. Well, my, 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 my old boss, Fred, did it like this. And now my, my new boss wants to do it like this. So I'd imagine you're dealing with a lot of personalities.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I, the biggest thing was not getting rid of people sooner. So I'm, my specific example is last year, the deal that we took over 10 months ago, there was pretty clearly some folks that just really weren't a fit. They were causing disruption. They were you know, just not a good culture fit with or without us being the owners, right? Like we, we didn't instigate that problem. And the, the mistake there was we should have gotten rid of them sooner. We should have just helped that situation along in the first week or two. But we didn't want to look like the owners coming in and laying down the hatchet, so we were more afraid of the perception of us being the you know the the firing squad than doing what was very clearly in hindsight the best decision for that company, which was removing people that that weren't to fit with or without us.
0: Yeah, going back to to how the transaction actually works, uh, and I'm not sure if the formula is the same or it changes every time. But can you give us a sense of sort of how much equity, how much debt, where are you getting
1: the debt and all that kind of stuff. All right, so we've got seven deals under our belt. So only two of them were SBA. The other five were either all cash or cash and seller note. Usually we go in 20 to 30% equity. It's just our own checks that we're cutting. And then we'll pull the, the rest of that debt either from seller note or SBA. It changes as the deals have gotten bigger. You know, when deals were smaller, like sub half a million, it would be 50/50 like maybe a quarter of a million in cash and a quarter of a million in a note but now that we're doing 2 and 4 million dollar deals you know we might only cut a half a million dollar check and we take the rest in some type of debt instrument whether it's seller or SBA so that's how most of them are laid out it is a little bit unique depending on each structure you know we 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 did a no money down deal last year which is unusual but they exist I did. I actually got paid to take the company. We ended up walking away with more cash, like one hundred and sixty or seventy thousand dollars to take over that company, which was pretty funny. In a nine hundred thousand dollar transaction. So, like, hey guys, that is real. Like, that's not like Twitter bait. <laughs> I don't yeah. think I've ever talked about it on Twitter because it sounds fake. But like, no, that happened.
0: <laughs> yeah. The the multiples that you're buying them for is that pretty set, or are those always big negotiations? It's usually three to four,
1: and you know. If it's three, you're dealing with a ton of project-based work, you're dealing with some new construction, you're dealing with remodels, you're dealing with non-recurring work that you have to usually chase money for. When you get up to a four, you're dealing with recurring revenue. So like the septic industry, we will pay a little bit more for a septic company because septic companies are essentially recurring revenue or reoccurring revenue businesses. They're fantastic.
0: Why is that? I think I've actually... I might have heard you talk about this, but describe why... Wh- yeah. wh- what is a septic company and why is it recurring?
1: So septic companies uh, is what it sounds like. It's just those giant tanker things that pump out septics or grease traps at restaurants. What makes it recurring is the grease trap contracts. So you can go into these businesses and, and we didn't even know this in our first one. This was like a total surprise. The sellers were great, but they undersold the reoccurring revenue side of the business, they didn't really even mention it and we didn't understand it. But in their defense, they oversold another portion. So it it ended up equaling out. But you have reoccurring visits for restaurants to pump their grease. So we have some customers that we are at every single Wednesday for their four or five locations. They have to be pumped 52 weeks a year. We have some that are every quarter, a ton of them are every month. So in that business, 30% of our revenue is... Reoccurring same customers we're out there every week or every month or whatever it is just continuing to go it's incredible
0: that's unbelievable you know I was talking to somebody who's got a big tech company a big software company just a couple of weeks ago on the podcast and he was talking about how they they have these contracts that are very expensive and their hardware goes in and they have software that that layers on and anybody who wants to transition out is like a twenty four month process so it creates these sticky customers and everyone is very envious of the whole software SaaS industry with the margins and the stickiness. But I've seen this in my business, and you just described it in your business, where you can get that recurring sticky revenue outside of just software. And it creates this thing where not a lot of people know about it. It's not nearly as sexy. But as you said, those revenues, I mean, when 30% of your revenue, and I'm sure you can grow that, is recurring, Mm -hmm. that's a phenomenal business.
1: Yeah. I think... So in contracting, I used to be really envious of septic companies. Because you would, we would always have to subcontract them in, right? We've had, we, we were doing plumbing and drains and we would constantly have to have these pump trucks come in and pump out whatever we were working on. And the thing is in contracting is whoever has the equipment makes the rules. That's just how it works. Someone has to be the guy to spend a quarter of a million dollars on something, right? So you can spend it on a septic truck. You can spend it on a well drilling machine. Like well drilling is another one that's not reoccurring at all. But you'd spend $250,000 and you would keep that thing busy all day, every day because people literally need water. Like th- it's not an optional, hey, should I do this today? It's like, hey, my well's broken. I have to drill a new one. Yes, I'll give you $10,000 for five of your hours today. Like it's crazy. Right. So someone has to be the guy to buy it. And it really is one of the few businesses where I think it's like a you build it, they come. Like if you if you're the guy that buy, owns the well drilling machine and you're available in the next seven days, like you will get work. That's just how it works. Septic <laughs> trucks, so too. <laughs>
0: cool. Yeah. How do you make the decision to build or to buy? Because it seems like you've just been buying constantly. At a certain point, I mean, if you've got the septic company or the plumbing company or what have you, wouldn't it make sense to just spend that cash on hiring more salespeople? Or do you still want to go buy a new mm-hmm. company?
1: So. It's easy on Twitter to be the guy that does the one thing, right? I'm the guy that buys home service companies. That said, we've started two and like full-blown companies in home service. Outside of home service, we started another three. And in between our companies, just organic growth like you're describing, that's a very normal part of our strategy. We don't just acquire. It's just easy to be known as the guys that acquire, mainly to help us continue to source deal flow as we're moving in the future. So like right now, inside our own company, we're launching an electrical service division. So we have a very large electrical project and remodel division, and we have plumbing service, HVAC service. We have all this other service and all these other customers that would pay for electrical service, but we don't have electrical service. So we're just gonna turn right around and you know, by the end of this year, it'll be a million and a half to $2 million a year division of our company. And we're just growing that organically inside our business. So we do both. And it's really just where's the current opportunity, right? So right now I'm seeing a lot more opportunity inside our own businesses, inside our own balance sheets than I'm seeing in current deals out there. So we're gonna just invest inside our own balance sheet. We're buying new equipment, we're bringing on new salespeople, we're launching a new division, but you know, maybe that equation changes in the next year and we go take down some more deals in addition to continuing to grow organically. So I think the answer you- is we do both.
0: Yeah. How do you think about keeping the sales? Because one thing I would think about your business, and you you just described a recurring portion of it with the septic uh, side. But I would think a lot of it as a novice, I would think you're getting house calls, something breaks, someone calls you. How do you keep the revenues steady and growing when a lot of it is transactional business? Is it? Have you figured out the formula of, okay, we got to spend this much on Google Ads, Or we've got to be, you know, creating a mailing list, or are are the revenues just lumpy and up and down here and there?
1: It's lumpy by season, but aside from season, it's pretty I'd say it's pretty standard. And yeah, we figured out best practices for marketing a few years ago. We we had to again, we've grown organically and through acquisition. I don't think it's an either or best practices just do both, supercharge, right? So it depends on the business and what their average ticket is, how like how we build their funnel for work but we have like our, our largest P and has about 60 people in it. They spend 40 grand a month on marketing. Maybe 15 of it is broadcast. So TV, radio, like pure branding, because then people will, ser- will search us. We'll get way more organic traffic and our cost per click cost per lead. Like goes dramatically down. We're paying a third of our competitors because we invest so much in our broadcast. Then we have a huge mailing campaign. We, you know, Thirty thousand emails in our database. We keep that going, and then we invest a ton in our pay per click, SEO, and LSAs. So we we do have it pretty locked in. We've built that up over the years, and we reevaluate it maybe once every six months as the needs of the company changes. Like right now, we're reevaluating it because we're adding electric, so we have to rebuild budget. So okay, what's a lead for replacing a fixture cost on LSA or PPC, and is that really the best way to do it, or should we use one of our other, you know, funnel builders to, to drive traffic. Yeah.
0: What does your team look like at the executive level? How many people report to you? And what are those roles that you've, uh, that you've got?
1: So I only have three people that report to me directly. So it's my director of ops, my associate, and my director of HR. Currently, the team is about 120 people on it. I think a little bit over. We're, we'll end the year somewhere around 150 for perspective. But yeah, currently only three people reporting directly to me, which is how I prefer it.
0: <laughs> yeah, a few, few direct reports. And then the folks that are handling, as you said, the marketing side, the hiring, I mean, I guess you have head, head of HR. Are you? Do you see that? Or is that just one level below you and you're not paying attention so much?
1: I get involved with some stuff. I'll get involved with, we'll call them a strategic hire. Like if we're creating a new position... To me, that's, that's a capital allocation decision. So I'm going to want to be involved in that in some capacity. So I'm trying to think what we're doing right now. We, we're preparing to bring on a marketing executive. That's a big investment. You know, We're opening up the floodgates for marketing budget. We'll probably cross seven figures uh, in spend. And we're trying to align all of our brands together and make it one family of brands. So big decision has to be the right person. I'm going to be super involved in that hire. And you can contrast that with our recruiter. I don't really get involved with what our recruiter does because her job every single day is to hire as many technicians as we can get our hands on.
0: Yeah. And then how much insight do you have into the kind of daily finances? One thing I found is when you're running a a collection of companies, and even right, you know, I've heard that Buffett does this even as his daily morning ritual as you you sort Mm -hmm. of see the numbers and you've got a dashboard of some sort. How do you keep an eye on the numbers? And, and what is your preferred dashboard? Is there an Excel spreadsheet? Are there a bunch of uh, emails you get every, every week?
1: So right now, I would say it's not optimal. Currently, I'm sitting in our director of finance seat as well. Not ideal. We've struggled to find the right person for that seat. We've hired people, we've delegated, it hasn't quite worked out the way I needed it to, I suspect because I did something wrong in the process. So. I, I decided, okay, I'm gonna take the seat for three months, I'm gonna fix the division, and then we're gonna hire someone who's baller and hand it off to them. So we're still in the middle of that three months. So right now I'm very involved in the numbers, purely because like, currently I'm, I'm in charge of the finance team. Past that, the way it worked previously and the way I'm expecting it to work after is we get daily Excel reporting, we call it our daily dashboard. So it's cash in each company, current assets, current liabilities, Networking capital quick ratio. So that's our daily report. We get daily sales reporting from all of our companies, and that's just automatic from the CRMs. And then weekly, we have, we're on EOS. So, weekly at our L10, we go through our finance metrics and it's just the, the big picture stuff like what's your networking capital? What's your percentage of AR above a certain aging period? What's your cash on hand? Those are the big ones.
0: Yeah. It's so funny. I, I've talked to a, a lot of people that have kind of businesses in the, in the lower or mid seven figures or even eight figures. And it's always some version of an Excel spreadsheet where all the data comes in. And you can see, as you said, it's cash on hand. It's you know, lines of credit. It's AR. Maybe it's contracts that, that haven't yet been billed for. But you've got to understand what your liquidity is at all times because it, it changes yeah. fast in, in, in a business like this.
1: Yeah. It changes fast. I wish there was a better way to do it. So part of our complexity currently is we're running like eight different QuickBooks accounts <laughs> and it qu- it's QuickBooks online so the only way to aggregate information is excel i have not currently in, i would love it if somebody you know listening would like dm me i would pay <laughs> m- i would pay money for this so this is a bus- this is a business idea but if you could aggregate financial information quickly from all eight of those that would be that'd be amazing we use fathom right now which does a good job with monthly reporting but they don't pull information any sooner than monthly. Yeah. So if you're looking for daily financial reporting, it's Excel, which is just very laborious. So I, I would yeah, I'd be very happy to pay somebody to figure out a solution for this.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I've I've got two more kind of wonky hold co questions and then uh, and then we'll we'll sort of get get to some some your thoughts on the future. So um, shared services, how do you think about shared services? Is everything shared or do you let them run independently?
1: So shared services, we look at this as we buy small companies. I think that's an important distinction because I talk to people who have a shared services company about the same size, like 9 to 15 people. And what they provide for their companies is totally different than what we have to provide for our companies because they're buying $100 million companies and I'm buying $5 million companies, right? So what you have to provide is just different. So we look at our shared services as a cost savings and an incubator. So if we're buying a business that does 2 or $3 million of revenue, we sort of have to life support that business until it's bigger so it can support its own bookkeeper, its own HR, its own marketing. But in the meantime, we're holding all of that in the shared services until they get large enough to support themselves. So that's mainly how we see shared services. As our brands have grown beyond that, we take someone from shared services and plug them down into that portfolio company. and we just did this with a bookkeeping. Finance is one of the quickest things we bring up to shared services because one, it gives us control, and two, it's usually the owner's wife and they're leaving. So we have to like you know make that happen really fast. But once a company crosses seven or eight million in revenue, we feel like we can support a full-time accountant in each company,
0: yeah. And then what kind of margins are there as someone who doesn't know the business at all? What kind of margins do you are... I guess, is there a difference between where the margins are for a mom and pop and then where you like to get them to? So do you see a company and say, you know, they're operating here. Their bottom line is this. I know it should be that. So I guess, what are the optimal margins? And then where are most companies in in the business?
1: We can almost always do better just because of cost savings, if nothing else. The deals that we did last year, we doubled their net operating income. And that was without changing pricing, that was without changing cost of goods, that was really only like, we spend less on healthcare, because we're a larger company, and we're able to aggregate stuff into shared services. So usually, we're looking for 17% for our asset light businesses. So that's going to be plumbing, HVAC, electrical. When you get into septic asset heavy businesses, so septic excavation damage remediation, you start to expect 35 to 40% net operating income.
0: So it, it goes up with asset heavy businesses? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. So I guess my, my last question here is you just did your state of the Wilson. You're talking to mm-hmm. a team of 120 people, up from I'm sure, like a dozen, you know, f- five or six years ago.
1: Yeah. What right, it was crazy.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I want I want to hear about it and I want to hear what what were the key takeaways and, and where do you see the business going?
1: Our mission statement has been pretty clear for a few years. And I think I I had, (laughs) that's most of what I reminded people of in in this one this week. So we're doing it per location. So we have five locations. So each one has a different amount of people. So today there was maybe 25 people. Yesterday was about 40. And each time it was, hey, here's what happened last year. Here's the good, here's the bad. Here's the four things we're focusing on this year. And then here's a quick reminder. Here's the journey we just went on. Like seven years ago, the first time I gave this talk, it was with nine people and it was out in a lobby right there that like, none of us can even fit in right now because we're too big of a team. Like, That's where we started seven years ago. And here's our mission statement. And our mission is we want to be a leading home service provider across Ohio over the next decade. So people are constantly like, where are we going? Why are we doing this? Why are we essentially playing Monopoly? And it's like, this is why we're doing it. This is where we're going. This is when we're going there. And if you look at that lobby... Seven years ago, everyone fit in there. And now we have to divide this into five meetings and we can't even fit in there now with just one of them. Like this is clearly working. So it it helps give people a real sense of what we're actually doing, what the big picture is, and a little bit of bragging too internally, which always helps morale.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Are, Are you, is it any, is it a lot of the same people? Do you have a lot of turnover in your business or are you actually seeing people stay for longer periods?
1: It's hard to get a good sense of turnover. My like my initial response is yes, right? Like yes, there's a lot of turnover. But then if we look at it, it's how could there how could there be a lot of turnover if we've added 110 people in the last four years, like just four years alone? How how could there actually be that much turnover? So of the nine people that originally started there, six of them are still there. So that doesn't feel that bad. We've just added a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. So the team yeah. feels very different. But I was thinking about that the other night. I was like, man, there was only there's only six of us that were at that first one. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna make this reference and only six people are gonna understand what I'm saying. And I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> that's how this works.
0: <laughs> that's what happens. Do you see yourself staying in the home services? I mean, is that really your calling? Or do you see yourself as more of a business builder and this is your first chapter and there'll be others' chapters? I've, have you thought about that at all?
1: Yeah, I've thought a lot about that. I like home service. I don't know if it's where, like, I'm sure I'm going to do other things. I'm doing other things now. But I really like home service. I like that people are always going to need hot water. People are always going to need toilets to flush. i don't I don't know why I get, maybe we graduated right during the Great Recession. so I've had this really, like, I need something that will always stay consistent and produce revenue and income. Because anytime I've ever looked at any other opportunity, it's through that lens. It's through that framework of how is this business going to handle a black swan event? How's it going to handle a great recession? How's it going to handle a pandemic? How's it going to handle like 99% of stuff doesn't matter. It's only 1% of stuff, but it's the 1% that actually counts, right? Like, Hey, yeah, my business did amazing for ten years, but then COVID shut it down in thirty days. Like, who cares how well it did for ten years? Who cares? You just went bankrupt, right? That doesn't matter. So that's the lens that I look through every opportunity with. And so far, home service is still the one that attracts me consistently the most.
0: Well, you've got sixty-four years to prove it, so uh, you, yeah. you, you, you get a good track <laughs> yeah. record.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I hope I would love to just. Like, I think the septic thing is hilarious. I love the septic industry so much. We sort of got into it by accident. We got into it first to get into the drain business and excavation business even more. And the septic just came along with it. But now that we're here, we're like, oh my God, the septic thing is amazing. This is insane. I want to buy like, I want to buy an unlimited amount of these septic companies. This is incredible. So yeah, maybe I'll be the guy that rolled up the septic industry. (laughs) You're going to be the, 10
0: years. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that'll be your new Twitter handle, Septic Industry yeah. Guy.
1: <laughs> yeah, Septic Industry Guy. I'll have to go anon, but yeah, it'll be good. Exactly. Okay.
0: Well, John, this was awesome. Really appreciate it. Why don't you tell us where we can find you and, and follow you for your podcast and your Twitter?
1: Uh, so I'm at Wilson Companies on Twitter. Uh, feel free to give it a follow. And we do a weekly podcast every Wednesday. It's called Owned and Operated. Thanks for
0: listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did leave a rating or review on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, it helps other people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. We'll talk to you guys next time.